1968, British police have infiltrated more than 1,000 political movements with undercover police officers. Many of those movements were not only peaceful, but advanced arguments we now see as politically common sense, whether it's advancing women's rights or opposition to apartheid. Seven years ago, Theresa May ordered an inquiry into the police's use of undercover officers relating to protests, and late last year, the undercover policing inquiry finally began. Expected to run until 2023 and coming in at a cost of tens of millions of pounds, it is a judge-led inquiry on a par with the Savile and Chilcot inquiries. But will it lead to justice and change? And even if it doesn't, what are the chances that it furnishes yet further light on how the police treat and often subvert democratic dissent? Joining me now is Tom Fowler, host of the Spy Cops Info podcast, and so far, someone who is attending every session and providing as much live reporting as is possible from the inquiry. Tom, welcome to Downstream. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Theresa May announced this was going to happen 70 years, seven years ago, yet it only happened late last year. Why did it take so long for this inquiry into undercover policing to actually happen? Because the goddamn cops, man, what else? So, I mean, like, essentially, um, the police used every opportunity they could to slow down the process. Um, partially, that's because they put in, like, um, they, they asked for anonymity orders for each of the individual officers. Um, the levels of secrecy, the level of anonymity these cops have had has been, well, practically unprecedented, to be honest. Um, they, they, obviously, they've had the documents, so there's the redaction process, so they, they've, like, dragged their heels through that. I mean, they've, they've put in a couple of judicial reviews, which... We don't know what the details of those were, but that slowed up the process as well. Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, just literally every opportunity the police could possibly choose to slow things down, they've taken it. I mean, it's worth noting on the anonymity thing. Um, they've been really like keen to, to like kind of impress upon the chair of the inquiry that the these former undercover officers would be in danger if they weren't anonymous. I mean, like, I think you'd probably be aware there's a number of former undercover officers uh, who infiltrated like criminal uh, groups or criminal gangs uh, who have a public profile, have no uh, no danger whatsoever. Um, Something some like Neil Woods, the one of the more noted former dr undercover drug cops, has come forward and said, well, this is ridiculous. I never expected any anonymity later in life. Why are these guys getting it? And certainly, you know, there's, yeah, it, it's really weird that they've got so much anonymity. But that's made not just the process for getting it started really slow, but as the inquiry takes place, makes it a really alienating and difficult process to engage with. From what I'm hearing and from what I've heard on your excellent podcast, I'd really recommend our audience to go to straight after this, but only after this. Uh, it, it sounds like the opposite of accountability and transparency. Obviously, you're there, not in the flesh. You're virtually there monitoring things. How does it feel to you? Are they trying to be transparent in this inquiry so far? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I have been going there in the flesh. So in order to watch um, the live feed of the undercover officers uh, give evidence, you have to go to a special viewing room, which is basically, you know, it's where the inquiry is actually taking place at the moment. As you say, a lot of it's because of COVID, but I don't expect the end of COVID will result in the beginning of any kind of transparency happening. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, like, I think the whole thing, like, I mean, like so many of these things, man, it's like, it's designed to be alienating. It's designed to be like off-putting to ordinary people, you know. So like, there's a whole there's a whole layer of like legal bullshit, which is like quite hard to kind of from someone like myself to sift through in the first place. But um, they, it feels like they've done everything possible to like kind of keep keep as much as possible secret. So, for example, the undercover officers they've all got anonymity for their real names uh, and in some cases their cover names. Um, but uh, they don't actually refer to them by their cover names. They refer to them by a cipher. Uh, the HN number, uh, but then there's certain officers who've got such a level of secrecy, they haven't even got a cipher assigned to them. 
So there have been num numerous undercover officers who've been deployed into political protest groups who we can't even really... It's quite hard to talk about someone when you haven't even got a cipher to describe them. Their mm. evidence has been put into gists, which are then um, like mixed together with other undercover officers who've got full anonymity. So that it's it's really hard to like draw out where where this bit of information is coming from. Typically, for any sort of inquiry, you know, as soon as somebody's giving oral evidence, all the written evidence is published. So, I mean, we've we've gone from a a real like famine to feast of information when it comes to this topic. And what's the ambit of the um of the of the inquiry rather? What what's it trying to cover? What's the period? What organisations is it looking into? So when the, uh, the inquiry, the, the terms of reference refer to uh, the, uh, the deployment of undercover police into protest groups from 1968, uh, which really refers to two groups, units, Special Demonstration Squad and the National Public Order Intelligence Unit. Um, the Special Demonstration Squad was uh, set up in 1968 uh, and ran through until the uh, 2007, I think it was. Um, the, uh, the National Public Order Intelligence Unit was set up in 2001, ran until, well, Run, run until it was discovered, essentially, 2011. It still exists in some form. Um, these these units were deployed, uh, like, again, in up to, like, four, approximately, once they got going, like, four to five-year deployments into political protest groups. Um, what we're discovering from the inquiry is it was almost, it was almost exclusively the left. Um, we, we, the, the inquiry is working in tranches, and this first tranche, which we're still on, is 1968 to 1970, uh, to 19... 82 and so far everybody has been infiltrated into the left uh like initially it was the anti-vietnam war campaign um once they kind of they, they were deep enough into that then it became the um anti-apartheid movement then the troops out movement uh anti-fascist groups um basically whatever the big noise was on the left at that time um supposedly their their issue was public disorder and sedition but um, mm. subversion, sorry, not sedition, subversion. Um, but you get an impression that it's neither of those things, really. And, and the, the thing about it not really uh, really monitoring, covering what we would now call domestic extremism on the right, I mm. mean, just for our audience out there, this, we're talking that the mid to late 1970s is a real, it's a, there's a hugely emergent, powerful far right in this country, both on the streets, but also the National Front doing pretty well in elections. So, I mean, that makes that look particularly strange, doesn't it? The absence of these guys going after right-wing groups too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, as you say, as well as like um, large numbers of protests by the National Front, they were like, I mean, the numbers involved were quite low, but like for, for an overtly fascist party in Britain, they were doing incredibly well. Um, they came forth in a number of elections. They looked like they might be take over the Liberals at one point. Um, I mean, Thatcher really successfully stole the like, you know, I mean, I think we see that again more recently with the Conservative Party just borrowing from parties further to the right to bolster their electoral whatever, you know. But yeah, I mean, in the 1970s, you had like a, a lot of racist attacks, fire bombings, um, pretty serious stuff. Uh, mm. I mean, it was, it was really kind of, it was quite shocking when I've been like hearing the evidence from these former undercover officers when it's put to them, like, why? Why did you choose the International Socialist, the you know, International Marxist Group, or Anarchy Magazine, or one of these to infiltrate when the National Front were so active? They went, oh, well, the National Front weren't a problem. And it just literally, like, it, without that context of knowing what was happening at the time, you think, oh, well, they weren't being a problem then. But it seems, I think this really kind of relates back to something we hear a lot, where, like, whereas, whereas like, left-wing politics is considered, like, you know, like... A, a, 
unacceptable, like maybe in the pay of foreign governments uh, mm. and like coming from like some secret evil clique. Like fascist politics is presented as like the legitimate concerns of the white working class. Mm. And you get the impression that that not only comes from the top, but also comes from like special branch, you know, that the police themselves clearly didn't have a problem with the National Front, probably because they supported a lot of those, those things. And it, also when you're reading their reports, uh, the language used in those reports, I'm not going to repeat it here because it's you know, incredibly racial language. Um, they're describing people, you know, uh, because these the, the reports they did on people were incredibly detailed. Um, not just, you know, kind of what they were doing politically, but what was going on in their personal lives, where they worked, where they were a member of a trade union, how much they earned, who they lived with, how much those people they lived with earned, what they looked like, uh, everything about them. But often, you know, often would include um, quite like quite nasty um, sort of comments about their appearance and and their race. Uh, both both people of colour, Jewish people, you know, also any kind of uh, ethnic minority was, was get was getting kind of uh, slagged off basically in the in these reports. More than a thousand groups were infiltrated by the mm. undercover. Uh, officers, I think more than well, you tell me more than 180 officers, I think, or something between 150 200 officers. Yeah, somewhere around there. I mean, so there's as well as the field officers, uh, there were there's the handlers, um, mm -hmm. but then a lot of some of the and backroom staff, but then some of those, uh, some, we've got some officers got more than one cipher because they had more than one role, um, right? Which initially you got the impression this was it, it, it part of what I was saying about being so alienating is kind of confusing. They, you kind of the numbers kind of move as you kind of go. Well, there was this many roles, but how many actual officers there were is, is different again. So, of these thousand organisations that were were infiltrated, more than a thousand, which are the ones that sort of stand out as particularly ridiculous for you? If you if you were trying to make the, make the case against spy cops, you're talking to somebody who says, "No, this is good. It was necessary." What, what was just like brazenly absurd? I was a member of a. Um, of, of a group called Eat Out Vegan Wales, where we went and reviewed takeaways and did like um, social gatherings in, um, in in vegan like vegan friendly restaurants. And Marco Jacobs, who infiltrated my group, was a part of that. I mean, I think it, it's very easy. I mean, you could talk about all sorts of um, you know kind of civic groups essentially and other kind of community organisations which were infiltrated by these undercover police. Um, I mean, but I think like. Well, when it comes to that sort of thing, I, I'm kind of I, I don't really kind of get into those kind of arguments generally because I think. Uh, but because of the nature of, of like these deployments, of course they infiltrated those kind of groups because they're infiltrating the lives of people. And I think it's, it's really key mm. to understand that these they're not just infiltrating organizations. And, and often they're barely infiltrating the organization. They're infiltrating the lives of the people who are in those organizations. So, you know, they're infiltrating groups like Eat Vegan Wales or these like, you know, perfectly reasonable groups in the same way that they're infiltrating wedding parties and funerals and everything else that's in people's lives um, because the cover is that deep. Um, I mean, obviously, like you know, quite famously, they um, deceived a number of women into long-term sexual relationships and had children with some of them. You know, the, the fact that they infiltrated like some community groups along the way as well is, well, it's to be expected. We know of four undercover officers who had children. Is that correct? We know of four children. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't just one person. It was. It seems like this was basically given carte blanche by management. It seems this yeah, was I'm like this was kind of known about and wasn't really addressed. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's um, when we first found, like back in uh, uh, 2010, 2011, when we first discovered these undercover officers, um, there was a there was a narrative being spun by the Met Police that this was a, a firstly Mark Kennedy was a, a rogue officer, then his unit was a rogue unit, and then it kind of becomes more clear that actually this is 
systemic. This is more than just individual actions going on. Um, we, we, at first, we thought that it was it dated back, you know, kind of maybe a decade or two. But the more we learn, and, and with the inquiry, we're starting, because it's a linear inquiry, it's starting with, in 68. These things seem to go back much further and further. Um, one of the undercover officers who had a number of uh, sexual relationships, Rick Gibson, who we heard about, um, it, it turned out another when an, another undercover officer was giving evidence about him, uh, it was he was asked, did he know about uh, you know what, what he'd got up to, and he said, oh yeah, that gossip was well known throughout Special Branch before I joined the unit. So you know, it, yeah, that that those kind of uh, activities were happening from very early on. We heard from uh, a former undercover officer who used this, the cover name Graham Coates. Uh, who said that he that it, the the language being used that the banter the the, um, the safe house banter that was going on between the undercover officers was would have been considered extreme misogyny ex extreme sexism even then in the 1970s um, because one of the defences that the police keep the police lawyers keep using is we shouldn't judge the social attitudes of people at the time by today's standards. Um, it's coming very clear that even by the standards of the day, they were pretty extreme, even though I, I reject that argument entirely anyway. I see the argument you're saying about, well, no, you know, we should judge this by the people's lives they were infiltrating. Also, a lot of these organisations have very permeable boundaries. You know, anybody involved in activism knows that you, you, you're kind of just friends with one person. You might go to some demos or one action once and all of a sudden you're a member of X. Often doesn't, especially direct action related stuff. But I think for our audience, you know, women's liberation, anti-apartheid, it does feel like the British state was systematically infiltrating forces for progress. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And, you know, okay, and people and people might have misgivings, you know, the Socialist Workers' Party, that's a, that's a revolutionary party, which ultimately wants, you know, political power. Okay, fine. And some people are, I don't even like the idea of that. Fine. But anti-apartheid, anti the anti-Nazi league? I mean, it, it sounds really astonishing. Within the police themselves, was there never a sort of political tension there? Did, did, are there, are there? Is there any suggestion, at least, that some people at the top were saying, you know, look, we just we had a war with th these guys in, in the 30s and the 40s, the Nazis. Now we're now we're monitoring people and infiltrating people, calling themselves the anti-Nazi league. Maybe we we shouldn't be doing that. So how was the politics of that all decided? Was it coming from the Home Secretary? Was it kind of autonomous? What was it? I don't certainly don't get any impression there there being any kind of political tension around this. Um, it's very clear that it went all the way to Home Secretary. Absolutely, um, the, the 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 annual reports that were submitted were to, to, to renew the funding. You know, made, made it very very clear it went all the way to the top. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right. It was you know, it, I personally believe that the, the whole thing was was about fighting social attitudes. Right? It, it's it's not just about disorder. It's not about anything else. It's about holding back those social attitudes. I mean, so like one of the groups was infiltrated uh, and, and broken up essentially by the deployment of undercover police, uh, the undercover officer, you know, was, was central in the, the expulsion of many of the main activists, um, was the Women's Liberation Front. And I mean, when they were formed, women weren't allowed to open their own bank accounts in the UK. There's this idea now, particularly that anti-apartheid, like these days, oh, everybody was against apartheid, right? Well, no, they bloody weren't. <laughs> the government of the day certainly bloody wasn't. And, you know, the Remember at the time when the anti-apartheid movement was active in the early 70s, um, you know, BOSS, the uh, the security services from South Africa, were you know planting bombs across London and you know getting involved in all sorts of really heavy-duty shit. And the anti-apartheid movement were getting their jumble sales infiltrated. That you know, whilst we we might we might think that oh yeah you know the the that everybody in British politics was would be against the Nazis, against the apartheid. Well, no, they're not. No, they weren't. And, you know, 
Foresight's a wonderful thing. And the reality is, is that it served the interests of the British establishment for the rise of things like the National Front as a, a counterbalance to, to left-wing ideas and left, left-wing populism. Assessing this stuff, the best way to look at it is, imagine what Britain would have been like if these guys hadn't infiltrated more than a 1,000 organisations, if they hadn't deployed into this and that organisation, how much further along we would be in terms of social progress. I think that's such a powerful argument. And that mm. it doesn't really feel like there's a pushback because you know at least with when you have when you have um, undercover policing with drug stings or counter terrorism you know with actual terrorist organizations who've committed you know quite serious serious things people can agree or disagree about you know civil liberties being curtailed and so on and so forth but people can demonstrate and say look if we don't do this this happens but I, I can't really see it, the, there was no there was no downside if they hadn't done this there was only upside is that a fair assessment so initially, the unit is supposedly set up as a response to the um, anti-Vietnam War demonstration um, in May 1968 outside the, uh, U- the U.S. Embassy in Grosvenor Square, which the police lost control of. Um, and there's, you know, the, the initial argument is that we needed that intelligence in order to be able to, be able to meet the challenges of public order, public disorder. Um, so there's this the idea that we're wasting police resources by over-policing certain demonstrations and putting police at danger by under-policing other demonstrations. Um, I, I don't buy that at all. I mean, largely because you could get that kind of information without infiltrating these groups that, to that level. But certainly, once you get beyond the, the early days of the unit, it's obvious that their, their agenda is much wider than that. And yeah, like they're, they're, they're holding that they're, they're they're holding back these organizations not just by like infiltrating them and like reporting on them but by in many cases taking the roles that would have gone to like activists who are very um you know competent and articulate and know what they're doing taking those roles getting elected elected into positions and as they bragged themselves at the inquiry didn't do much didn't do anything didn't do any any of the work though i wasn't you know i wasn't wasn't working for the for for those I was I was infiltrating, I, I just took the position and, and didn't do very much. So I mean, if you take, like for example, Rick Gibson, who infiltrated the Troops Out movement, um, I mean, he actually contacted because where he was deployed, there was no local branch. He had to contact the national organisers and say, "I want to start a branch in my area." He became the rep for that branch. He ended up being the rep for, for London. He ended up being on the national committee, and for a while, he was national coordinator of the Troops Out movement. So they're taking very, in some cases, like. In, the, the key role inside an organization. Um, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that like that not only would the Troops Act movement have been more effective, but perhaps, you know, that the, the message that they were giving, which was that we didn't want to have a military deployment in Northern Ireland, aside from any kind of concerns about what Irish Republicanism means or didn't, but that like there shouldn't be soldiers on the streets, would would have got a lot further, right? If there wasn't an undercover cop running the organization that's making this this argument. Um, and, and more than that as well, I think like um, one of the key things which like the undercover cops used um, was trauma in, in a number of ways. They used trauma as part of their deployment, a part of their legend, but also they used trauma um, for how they how they interacted with the group and how they how they've ultimately left. And that use of trauma often left its mark on people. Uh, many mm. of many of which you know didn't get involved in politics as much or in activism as much going forward as maybe they would have otherwise. Um, and I think we, the, the, the use of undercover police into activist groups 
really like stunted not just those groups but the people involved with them from doing that kind of activism again in the future and i think to, to my way of thinking you know there's too many amazing amazing inspiring activists that i know like have spent decades of their lives firstly trying to piece together what really happened but also dealing with the the trauma or the you know, uh, supporting somebody who's supposedly, supposedly gone through trauma because so many of these undercover officers would, would tell a story of their own personal trauma which would then make people want to look after them can you just provide one example of um of of an officer and perhaps their legend and and and, and the kinds of ways they manipulated those around them yeah sure i mean like so i mean it was what was really common um so it's so, so like uh uh, Andy Davy, um, who um, we know as Andy Coles, uh, he's the brother of Reverend Richard Coles. Uh, he's currently a, a counsellor in Peterborough. Up until not long ago, he was the uh, deputy police and crime commissioner for Peterborough. He was an undercover police officer in the early 1980s, uh, in mid 1980s, in animal rights groups in London. Uh, he claimed that his parents both died, that uh, he was adopted, that he'd been in care. He was fostered. He'd been in care. Um, and he made connections with people who had had similar stories. Um, you know, during his de uh, his deployment, uh, you know, he 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 gave a lot of um, a lot of. Do you know what? It's really difficult for me to talk about all of this because so much of this is um, about these stories is personal information which people who've been traumatized by undercover police have told to me. Some of it's in the public domain, some of it's not. So I'm always really wary of talking about a lot of this because though it might be in the public domain, I could easily get it confused. Um, but you know, essentially, like it's it's a pattern we see across these undercover officers. So many of them had um, these stories of trauma. Often they would come out. For example, Marco Jacobs, who infiltrated the group I was in, he claimed he'd been a, a victim of domestic violence in his previous long-term relationship, um, which was something which he didn't really want to tell people about because he was a proper bloke and this woman had knocked him around a lot and uh, he it had really affected his confidence and his, his, he had problems around that. Um, when like uh, Mark Kennedy was discovered as being um, uh, having like a fake passport and stuff. He came out with this this hugely like complex uh, cock and bull story, which involved him, you know, staying up all night crying in the arms of the, of the woman he was infiltrating, um, telling telling this ridiculous story of of, of horrible of horrible trauma, um, things which really stuck with people for for a long time. Um, there's so many examples of it, yeah, and and so, and so similar as well. I and mean, that's one of the other things is that so many of these officers' stories were so similar. And and it would it would appear. I mean, that we look at something like the Tradecraft Manual, um, which you know really um, like kind of set out the sort of the, the way in which to behave around what they called wearies, um, which was you know, and actual activists who they found like wearisome to, to to deal with because they would talk politics to them and stuff. Um, that you know, the, the 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 tips and tricks that they were being given, they they, they obviously used, and so much of it's redacted. We we don't know what's in it, but we drawing from what is what we can read. You get the impression of people being incredibly manipulative um, of people's emotions, um, not just not just in a way to like kind of the like for, for their deployment and for for their, for their legend for the make their job easier, but also just to kind of like twist the knife a bit, basically. You know, particularly when we see the withdrawals, because often, you know, often these men were in um, what to the women they were in relationships with, incredibly loving relationships. Um, these men were like the perfect men for them in some way because they had so much information about their target that they could present themselves as the perfect boyfriend. Um, and then when when they did disappear, they would, you know, concoct this story that was, you know, that 
was so traumatic that it would kind of made sense why they disappeared, but meant that left these women like wanting to search them, being very worried about them for some kind of cases, decades on end. Of course. I mean, I mean, there's no other word for it. I mean, I find it evil. Um, and I think also, you know, it's, this was a job mm. where the absolute worst elements of kind of, you know, top people's toxic masculinity, but kind of narcissistic, lying, deception, maybe prone to physical violence. And the state is saying to these men who are, you know, I mean, I, I, they, they're basically saying, look, unleash this sort of inner psychopath in you, if you, if you will, do all these things that you could never normally do you know, in your everyday life. And what's more, the public story for it's going to be, you're keeping people safe doing it. And I just, I find it astonishing. And of course, there was a, there was a public campaign to, to, to talk about getting spy cops, uh, well, ending the whole practice. Um, and it was raised most memorably, of course, by Lush. And there was a huge public kickback to that. I mean, when that campaign happened, A, were you surprised that the, the, the sort of overt political nature of the campaign, of course, Lush have been involved in these things, but they really took it on. And were you also surprised at the level of sort of public pushback? The, the fact that people are willing to defend the police having mm. children with women and effectively sexually assaulting them and then leaving their lives forever. Basically, right, we had a, we had some, like they kind of met with us and were like, you know, what can we do to help? And we're like, we should do a campaign. And we're we like, in the window campaign, come on, you should do that. Because they'd given some funding, some various groups, they'd given some funding to police spies out of lives uh, around b before that time. And we were like, we went to a window campaign and we were like, yeah, great, do that. And then we kind of, they asked us some advice and we were like, yeah, do this, do that, whatever. And then I'll be honest, I didn't think it was anybody who was going to fucking notice much, to be honest. I mean, I've been involved in other things that had like a, a lush window campaign and it hasn't resulted in a great deal, to be perfectly frank. You know, you kind of get a little bit of uh, added interest, you know, but like it doesn't really amount to a whole hill of beans. But like, fucking hell, that was a big deal, wasn't it, eh? <laughs> I mean, like, fucking hell. Yeah, I was like, I was in work and I, I, you know, I've got things turned off in work with them. But I looked at on my lunch break. I looked at my phone and was like, "Oh shit, what's what's going on?" Um, yeah, I'm 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 always surprised by people. I mean, I think partially it's my own background. I'm from South Wales. I grew up in the '80s. You know, like the police were a uh, occupational army around here at one point. You know, I was I was most people I know ain't got much time for the cops. I'm always shocked that people like support the police. Um, it seems regardless of what they do. You know, I it's yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That, that whole sort of thing of like um, the, the the push, like the 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 push for the king. It's like even the bloody Home Secretary had a go about it, didn't he? I mean, like, yeah, we'll be tired. You criticise the police on like some really serious matter, um, and like you know, can hold them to account for it because apparently then you're undermining all policing. I don't know, man. Like it, it really. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm never like. I'm not. I'm not one to like kind of have a reasoned argument with people like that. I mean, I just like just you know. Fuck the police, man. <laughs> Fuck off. Like. For me, I thought it kind of reflected a certain desperation in a way because it's mm. like it was it was just so transparently obvious that they were in the wrong. And, and, and mm. like you said, there, there are that's, there's probably 25% of society who will defend the police whatever they do, mm. you know, and most of them vote Tory. Um, yeah. And it, 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 it did feel like an act of desperation. But, but speaking about that, actually, um, you've got Theresa May in all of this, who, of course, was a Tory Home Secretary, who is the one that's basically started this inquiry. We'll maybe talk about that briefly in a moment about whether or not you think it'll go anywhere, but it's still a judge-led inquiry into the police started by a Conservative Home Secretary who's actually, she's not exactly on the, you know, that she was not on the centre of the party on things like immigration and so on. So how, how can we understand this? How do we make sense of the fact that Theresa May is the one who gave us an inquiry into undercover policing? 
Fuck knows, man. To be honest with you, like people always ask me, what surprises you most about this process? And like once you've got over the initial mm-hmm. thing, right? Like it's hard to be. I mean, I'm shocked, but not surprised all the time. But I was bloody surprised that she did that. I mean, I think like it shows. Um, I mean, partially it was because of the infiltration of the Lawrence family, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Justice for Stephen Lawrence campaign, um, and. The, the political capital that like that has in this country just about is one of the few kind of few kind of progressive like, anti-racist things that has some sort of political capital in this country for reasons I don't really understand. Um, I think I mean I got the impression I maybe people who understand these things better than me might have a different view, but I got the impression that like Teresa wanted to like save a few quid. <laughs> you know, it was like. Mm. Yeah, for good neoliberal reasons, the cops cost too much, and she was trying to cut them down to size. And there was a few things. Didn't you do like a couple of inquiries at that point? And like the the, the Daniel Morgan independent inquiry, maybe a panel was that same sort of time, you know. So I think there was like there was other battles going on, and this was just a way of like because I remember she didn't she get booed at the like police federation that year? Yeah. Like they were. She was obviously she like you know for, for whatever reason she was having a pop at the cops and like you know i'm i'm no fan whatsoever They're absolutely none at all but like fair play to her for pulling this one i don't know why she did really i'm i think it's great that she did but like i don't know why and i couldn't give you any insight I think, why i mean my theory with Theresa Mays, i think it's partly neoliberalism but i also think like mm. the, the tories a lot of tories obviously pretty patel would never do what Theresa may did but i think they think like we're the elected government we're the ones that should be making these political choices and the reality is that the metropolitan police service the police generally in this country, Scotland Yard, New Scotland Yard now, genuinely think like they aren't answerable to anybody. Gen- you know, gen- I mean, of course, the, the political leadership is answerable to the Home Secretary in regards to certain things, but I think they view themselves as autonomous. And the second you sort of say, well, hold on, actually, formally, that's not the case, they get really shirty. And I think that that's where that conflict came from. I think just reversing for a second, I mean, this is something you talked about, I think, in one of the podcasts as well. And it, this blew my mind. This blew my mind, Tom which was that Peter Hayne in 2003 was, and maybe you can tell me who said this in the police. Peter Hayne, of course, was a member of the Labour cabinet under Blair. In 2003, even up to then, was still being referred to as a South African terrorist mm. by, by the police. And this is when he's in government. They're not, this is what they were calling him 40 years earlier. This is somebody who's serving in Blair's government. So you think, Christ, if, if a Labour, and he's now in the House of Lords, if a Labour minister is a terrorist for these people, God help the rest of us. Could you can you sort of illuminate that anecdote a bit? Who, do we have any idea who said this and why? You know why they said it? I mean, that's a bit more explicable, perhaps. It was a report from Mark Kennedy, um, who was uh, in a, a deceived Kate Wilson into a sexual relationship at the time. Um, Kate Wilson's family. Kate Wilson went to school with Peter Haynes' kids. Um, uh, the family were friendly with 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 Peter Hayne, and he'd been at some. I think it was over Christmas. It was some family, ga- some like Christmassy gathering that he was at, and it was in uh, Mark Kennedy's report from that that you know, the, uh, the noted South African terrorist was there. You know, um, yeah. I mean, I think it really just shows you like kind of how deep the hole is. I mean, like um, that, you know, though you might have a different government at some time, it's still the Tory state, man. The UK is the Tory state. They own the state. Like, no matter if they're not the government, they're still the fucking state. And like, you know, it, and I'm sure, sure, like people like. You can join the establishment if you like, you know, k- kiss enough boots and kiss enough asses and do all the right things. But like, you're not, you're never fully, you're never fully that like, you're still, you, you know, like tough, like you're still scum to them, really. Uh, and I, I just, I think it just illustrates that. I mean, we haven't found any, um, every, every political party in the UK was infiltrated except for the Conservative Party. And, you know, that's, that kind of says it all, really. 
that's another thing. Yeah, I mean, following up from the Peter Hain point, you know, the, 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 these guys infiltrated the young liberals, mm. parts of the Labour, but the young liberals, man. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the young liberals were like opposing apartheid. So obviously, you know, I mean, like it was important for the, the, the British state to, you know, give their due support to their ally in South Africa and to stamp out the campaign against what was internal South African politics, right? I mean, like, you know, I mean, literally, like we we can it's not a complicated answer it's 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 the obvious answer they were like yeah we might think of them as quite mild but like they were opposed to what was the law of the day so like they were they were a problem so final question here you know this to me sums up british politics and, and british public life on the one hand we've got an inquiry into undercover policing and at the exact same time we've got you know a bill proceeding through parliament both parties ostensibly were backing it that's sort of changed um basically legalizing a bunch of practices you know codifying in law rather than just sort of letting things pass a lot of the practices that we've been talking about today that you'll be covering over the next couple of months and, and years indeed with this inquiry again how do you make sense of that tension there's a there's a there's a there's a judge-led inquiry into a set of behaviours, and at the exact same time, they're being legalised by the Conservative Party, and almost, almost the Labour Party got behind it. Ultimately, it became too politically costly. How do we make sense of that? Is it? It, it just seems so chaotic, and um, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's just kind of like volatile and doesn't make any sense to me. Can you make sense of it for me, Tom? Can you help me understand it? If you're playing the game, right, and you're following the rules and you're kind of like doing it in the right order or whatever, no, it doesn't make any sense. But like, since when do the fucking, does your, the Boris Johnson's this world or like does the Tory party in general give a shit about that, man? It's like, it was an ideal opportunity. They won some case at the IPT, uh, some MI5 case, and there was an opportunity and they just fucking jumped, right? So they just did it. Like, and actually it makes perfect sense. If you think, if you, if you like looking at it from their point of view, it's like, Oh, well this could be embarrassing at some point once it finally reports in like 20 years time, whatever the bloody how long, long this thing's going to take. Um, but if we just legalize it all now, it won't be a problem. And also it means that we can carry on with all these other things that we're doing right under the noses of this inquiry with, you know, I mean like, because, because might is right. And that's the only, that's all that politics means. Yeah, I think that's. I think that there is definitely a relationship between these two between these two things, and I think ultimately, yeah, when the inquiry reaches its conclusions, well, it's all legal now, so no more inquiries needed. Tom, if our audience wants to know where to find you uh, and 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 to, and to follow your work, where where do they need to go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tom B Fowler. Um, if you want to check out the podcast or anything else, I've got links to everything. Uh, Spycops.info. Uh, it's all there. If you've enjoyed this interview, like I said at the start, there's two things you can do. Don't cost you a thing. We really appreciate it. Like this video, subscribe to the channel. If you want to see more content like this, and I think we have to get Tom back on to talk about this important topic, go to NavarraMedia.com forward slash support. Help us build a new media for different politics. My name is Aaron Bastani. have been watching Downstream. Michael Walker is back tomorrow night with Tisky Sour. But from me, uh, from our producers, and I presume from Tom too, good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.